at the end of the day, no one is going to get better if you over-medicate, if you put them to work physically, if your punishments are so severe that you actually end up physically hurting them. They're not going to learn anything from that. They're going to be worse coming out than they were went in. Welcome to Mad Waters, one family's story from both sides of the mental health system and our search to find those fixing it. I'm Adrienne Seifert. And I'm Michael Seifert. And the voice you just heard was our daughters, whose experiences inspired our pursuit of something better. True story. On the much-anticipated, twice-postponed blind date with the man who would become my husband, we almost missed each other. I had gone to the bathroom. Eventually, we found each other across from one another, where I learned that he was both the winner of a biochemistry scholarship to McGill University and a bouncer at a biker bar in Montreal, a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute and of the ultra-liberal, formerly women-only, Bennington College, and I would lay money that he's still the only graduate of both. And probably, most important of all, he had a great sense of humor. Aw, shucks. (laughs) Well, I'd learned enough to end our first date at the neonatal intensive care unit where I was a pediatric resident, staring at rows of tiny, tightly swaddled babies. Subtle. Well, it worked. Fast forward to a few weeks before our wedding. We were playing musical chairs with seating arrangements for the reception when we got a call from my father. That night, that call was unlike anything I had ever encountered. It made me believe that madmen do exist and that they walk among us. I'm Adrian Seifert. And I'm Michael Seifert. And this is Mad Waters. The reason for the call was innocuous. Would we pick him up at the airport for the wedding? A reasonable enough request, except he was flying in the very morning of the wedding. We apologized profusely and offered to pay for a taxi. He was silent. And finally, he spoke. Did he tell you, my dear, that he was born a bastard? No. So many secrets I imagine he's neglected to tell his bride-to-be. It's not too late to call it off. It only got worse from there. He called ten, twenty times all night. You will live to regret this, old boy, I remember him saying. He went from menacing to rageful, Over and over, the phone would ring and the answering machine would go on. I will destroy you. If I could do it to my brother, I won't think twice about doing it to you. As the night wore on, his words began to slur and his language became crude and ugly. Well, he kept his promise. He hired several private detectives throughout the years to track us down or follow us, sent false documents to bosses or department heads called my parents with lies and half-truths. So like any child, especially one with a similar history, I was determined to be nothing like dear old dad. But I was a physician, a clinical researcher, 
and I knew he'd always be part of me on some cellular level. But what were the mechanisms of genetics? How fated are we to be like our parents? What have we learned about the age-old nature versus nurture question? And, most importantly, how can this knowledge shape the way we parent? Dr. Rachel Yehuda is a pioneer in the study of traumatic stress. Her breakthroughs in the intergenerational effects of trauma, molecular biomarkers of stress vulnerability, and resilience and the prevention and treatment of PTSD are internationally recognized. She is a professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She is also director of mental health at Bronx VA Medical Center and director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Program at Mount Sinai. And this year, she led the opening of Mount Sinai's Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. There is no one more qualified to talk about how trauma may be passed down through generations, and more importantly, what we can do to help build resilience in our children and find the right support when needed. Dr. Yehuda, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Both my parents were World War II survivors, and when I learned about your work, it really resonated. You say that we don't just carry the genes of our parents, but also their history. Can you say a bit about what that means? Yes, certainly. We inherit not only genes from our parents, but we also inherit in some way uh, effects of traumatic experiences that our parents had to endure. When people are confronted with extreme trauma, they have to make changes in their bodies to help them cope with what's going on. Now, some of these changes are very short-lived or acute, like you've heard about the fight-or-flight response, which is a response that really generally doesn't last very long after a threat is gone. But when people are exposed to really horrific events that require a sustained or really dramatic response, sometimes the body has to figure out a mechanism of producing a more long-term response or heading towards resilience mechanisms. And so it turns out that the changes that we sometimes make are molecular changes or epigenetic changes that change the program of our genes. An epigenetic mark is a chemical that sits on top of a gene that can change the way the gene functions. This chemical change is sustained or maintained when that cell will undergo division. Our cells are dividing all the time in our bodies. And it is also possible that when our cells are dividing to form sex cells, that is sperm or egg, that some of the epigenetic changes in response to the traumas that we endure are preserved. But it's really important to point out that what we may be carrying is a biologic process that our parents used to help them adapt to trauma, to help them cope with it, and to build resilience. So that's one mechanism that can really explain how we are not only our parents' genes, but we also carry some molecular souvenir, if you will, of the traumatic experience of the parent. I like to use the term intergenerational response to trauma. It's not that we inherit the trauma, 
per se. It's that the effects of the trauma continue to affect us. Really, what is being transmitted, I think, is information about the trauma with respect to the coping that had to occur. So we're really adapting those uh, who respond to trauma, and those epigenetic changes are allowing potentially for more adaptation. Is that fair? I think that that's entirely fair. I think the, the beautiful idea here is that we do change in response to environmental events, and that some of those changes come in the form of lessons, right, that need to somehow um, be imparted to the next generation. If you have undergone extremely adverse circumstances, there might be some wish to impart this knowledge of how you made it through to your offspring so that they too can develop coping strategies to adapt. Now, obviously, when a person's exposed to extreme trauma and sustains a molecular or biologic change, they, they can't will that change. <laughs> but maybe this is um, nature's mechanism of really being able to transmit vital information from one generation to the next. The information itself isn't necessarily positive or negative. It would be the circumstances that the offspring finds themselves in that would determine whether the epigenetic changes, if you will, or the information that has been transmitted is useful or unuseful. If an offspring finds themselves in, in a very similar situation to a parent and really needing those coping skills or those mechanisms of survival, then perhaps those changes will be very useful. But if an offspring finds themselves in a completely different situation or environmental context, then maybe those changes will be less useful. For example, hypervigilance to your environment, scanning the environment to make sure that you're safe is going to be a lot more beneficial to someone who lives in a dangerous environment. For somebody who lives in a safe environment, those mechanisms may be less useful, may even result in someone feeling worried all the time or even paranoid or not really understanding why their body is on alarm when the actual environment that they live in did not give them any reason to be. And I'm so glad that we were able to understand that better because I think there really is this distinction that when you are simply saying that term intergenerational trauma, it seems completely negative. And as a parent of someone who struggles, you know, it can feel as if this is one more reason to feel that I or we have failed our child, that we have um, brought this child something from our genetics or from our past experience. So it is so important to really be able to look at it in that way of adaptation. So I appreciate that explanation. It's actually really important that parents not feel that they have burdened their children with their mental illness or with the effects of their adverse experiences or even the effects of their uh, ancestors' experiences. It's so much more useful to think about all the coping strategies that you may have 
been imparting while you struggle yourself with your own traumas or your own mental health symptoms? Because I think the most important thing that you can tell a child who is struggling is that you really believe that they have the coping resources to make it through. That's really the the strongest and most empowering message that you can give. And if you are feeling guilty, if you're feeling that you are the cause of your child's um, problems or struggles, then that child just has one more thing to feel bad about. And so ultimately, it's just not, it's not helpful. And it's, it's also not true. I think parents are there really trying to help and trying to find the coping and resilience resources for the child and being there and holding space and supporting the child that is struggling through difficult times is actually doing a lot. Thank you for that clarification. It really sounds like trauma is not simply impacting the individual, but really the family and the family system. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on how important is parent support in addressing the stigma and isolation that many families experience? Well, I think just coming together as parents who are struggling around the issue of their children's mental health or their children's aftermath following trauma can be very, very important. You know, we live in an age of social media where people are forever telling you about all the great things that are happening in their lives and in their children's lives. And of course, we don't want people to snap pictures of all of the terrible things that are happening to them. We're happy for everyone that is going on a nice family trip or whose son got into law school or whose daughter just became a doctor. But for parents that have children who are struggling, I mean, this can feel very alienating. And this can make people feel like everyone else is doing so well. Why am I struggling? The truth is, it doesn't take much to really realize that a lot of people are struggling and to come together to support one another in the struggle. People will feel less alone and there might be some really practical information that people have that they can impart to one another, um, strategies for coping. But certainly being embedded in a larger community, that's what our ancestors were doing for millennia before modern psychiatry and before people went to people in very private offices just to talk in a one-to-one way about struggles. Uh, People were held by their communities. Yeah, I appreciate that. Having worked at the Ann Arbor VA, I really found it reassuring that we started as a department in psychiatry to understand the importance of family support, of involving the families. And I'm hearing that that is and can be a critical factor. Are there family support networks that focus on trauma that you're aware of? I mean, I would really start with one's place of worship, churches or synagogues or community centers. There's this idea that if somebody has a mental health problem, the only place where that can be dealt with is in a community mental health setting or in a private mental health setting. And I think that if you're lucky enough to find care in those settings, that's terrific. But I think a lot of people who struggle don't necessarily think that they have a mental health issue per se, or they may not feel that having environmental problems is, is the same 
as a mental health problem, they may just feel this is my life. For example, many people struggled this last year and a half around COVID. Um, They didn't necessarily go to mental health providers. They looked within their communities to kind of support one another through difficult times. Um, As family members were trying to cope with at-home learning, um, perhaps uh, children couldn't go to school and, and parents had to work anyway. And so many turned to communities to see, like, how can we reorganize and rearrange things so that our village can kind of deal with a problem that might be just too large if it were just contained within a family. I appreciate hearing that from you so much. And it reminds me of our last guest that we had, Dr. Alan Francis, who spoke about the community in Trieste in Italy. And, um, you know, that idea of a community being accepting and a parent's willingness to go to that community for help, I think, um, is really going to be uh, so essential as we move forward and make changes in the mental health system that are uh, positive changes. So thank you for sharing that. Dr. Yehuda, you, you were the first to outline a novel biological mechanism to explain the neurobiology of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you talk a bit about how that impacts the body and the brain, and is this response different in children? Yeah, we were one of the first groups to begin looking at the biology of post-traumatic stress disorder in the 1980s, a few years after the diagnosis first appeared in the DSM-3. And one of the things that we found was actually a very paradoxical effect where patients that had chronic PTSD showed lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol, but higher levels of the stress hormone adrenaline. And that was a very big mystery to us. That was a real paradox because at the time, everybody knew that high cortisol levels were associated with stress. And here we have a whole condition called post-traumatic stress disorder. Shouldn't stress hormone levels be high as they are often in uh, depression or other anxiety disorders? So one of the things that we learned about the stress hormone cortisol was that levels of this hormone were paradoxically low in patients that have post-traumatic stress disorder, even though their adrenaline levels were higher. And at first, this didn't make any sense because everybody used to think about cortisol as a hormone that is released in response to stress. Now, that's perfectly true, but in many circumstances, the release of cortisol actually is what helps you shut off the stress response. And everybody who's had a fight or flight response knows that their heart doesn't continue beating out of their chest, even though it was when you were encountering danger, or maybe you had a near miss on the highway, or maybe a stranger was following you and you thought that um, you might be attacked. At some point, you assess that you're safe. And with that assessment, your heart stops beating out of your chest and your body stops having the fight or flight response. What happens sometimes in people that have PTSD is that that reminders of the event 
bring back that entire fight or flight response. They find their hearts beating out of their chest. And they find themselves having the same stress physiology of when the event was occurring in real time. And I think that part of it has to do with the fact that the mechanisms that are there to sort of contain the stress response, so for example, cortisol levels containing adrenaline levels are not functioning as they should. And you can see this in the brain also, that the um, amygdala is a center of the brain that really is active in detecting threat and is very stimulated and aroused during the fight or flight response. But the center of the brain, um, medial forebrain, that usually puts a damper on the amygdala when people start to feel safe, underfunctions somewhat in PTSD. So what you have is that the safety messages don't get relayed as well, and that's why people continue to feel that they are unsafe. So we've learned a great deal about the fact that a lot of the mechanisms that we think are there um, as negative consequences of stress are actually there to help us. Of course, it is true that um, if those mechanisms remain um, in operation, for example, chronically high cortisol levels can also be very damaging to people's health. And that's why people want to avoid having chronic stress. But the idea is um, that stress hormones, when you're undergoing an extreme challenge, can really be helpful in helping you achieve resilience and after the resilience is achieved, your body may not be in a um, hormonal fight or flight response, but may be better set up to respond to um, a similar stressor in the future, depending on the outcome of how it coped with the first event. And I would imagine that to some degree, every individual has a, a more personalized response to trauma. Um, and the goal as therapist and behavioralist is to try to really develop a personalized treatment plan. Um, as a psychiatrist, I have often recommended many gold standard therapies to my patients experiencing distress due to trauma. But frankly, many have not been effective or in some cases have made the symptoms worse. What can we tell families right now who need help? Well, the most important thing that we can tell them is that they should seek help and um, adjust their expectations. It sometimes um, may take a few tries to be matched to the treatment that is going to be um, particularly helpful. Right now in science, we don't have a crystal ball, if you will, that allows us to know who is going to be responding to what Therapy. It's something that my lab has been working on developing um, a blood test that will actually be prognostic, that will actually be able to um, help identify which treatments might be most likely to work based on a person's biology, very similar to what is done in cancer these days. But absent that definitive knowledge, a patient's going to have to try different kind of approaches, potentially before they find the one that is going to be helpful for them. For some people, psychotherapy is really all that it takes, but the kind of psychotherapy where they have the freedom to confront traumatic memories in kind of a non-judgmental way 
with compassion, empathy, and understanding. For some people that have a lot of physiologic symptoms, it may be necessary to add a medication, but there are many different medications to choose from, and often uh, people are affected by the negative side effects of these medicines. And so it can sometimes be a rocky road um, until the right treatments are found. But these days, most providers really do know how to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and also recognize the need to be very flexible. When you're in therapy, you should be very, very involved in telling your therapist what is and isn't working, whether the sessions are making you feel better or worse. And that kind of communication will help the therapist try different ideas. But unfortunately, I wish I could say that there were one or two treatments that definitively have been shown to um, take away people's PTSD. Um, What people generally do in therapy is confront kind of the monster of the trauma, try to defang it a little bit, and try to help people cope with some of the symptoms that occur when they're triggered, try to help them learn how to be more trusting of people and do better in their interpersonal relationships. So again, people are developing novel approaches all the time. And I hope that in the next few years, we will really make great strides in um, understanding how to treat trauma. And I know that very recently, you led the opening of a new center for psychedelic psychotherapy and trauma research. And so I have to ask you, do you believe that the future of trauma therapy is in psychedelics? I've been very impressed with the initial findings from clinical trials using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And um, I also think that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy might be very helpful in processing uh, intergenerational trauma effects as well. We're going to test that hypothesis by having that kind of a clinical trial in the near future, I hope, and conduct clinical trials in um, other trauma survivors and people with PTSD, because I think that this work is just beginning, and it is really important to get a lot of experience studying um, real-world patients, patients that have been maybe suffering from PTSD for a long time. Believe it or not, there are people that you probably know who have been struggling with PTSD, not only for months or years, but maybe even for decades. And so the PTSD just becomes part of them. Um, You know, hello, darkness, my old friend. It really becomes who they are, and they can't even distinguish anymore the symptoms of PTSD from who they have become. And so I think a treatment like MDMA-assisted psychotherapy may be particularly well-suited for people who just need to go somewhere that they're not even sure where it is. MDMA provides people with an opportunity to access a transpersonal state or an altered state of consciousness with the right therapist under under certain conditions and in the right setting. I think people can have a really transformative experience and confront aspects of the trauma that help them get unstuck and help them kind of get over to the other side also where they can make room for the trauma and realize that as a result of the trauma, there are other opportunities for growth, for for resilience, and for living a really important, purposeful, and meaningful life. 
So I'm very, very hopeful that these trials will continue to show positive benefits. And of course, the reason for establishing the center is to really be able to study how these treatments work from a biologic perspective, why psychedelics are so promising in the treatment of PTSD and mental health isn't just because of the type of drug that they are. It's about a very different opportunity to learn what is inside of you and to be able to learn what you need in order to grow. These are medicines that often promote compassion and empathy, which I talked about before, which are really important ingredients for change. But it's often very hard for somebody who has been exposed to trauma to have a great deal of empathy and compassion for themselves. They blame themselves for everything that's happened. They feel incompetent about being helpless and about being in a state of symptoms. So all of their instincts are to continue in the guilt and the shame and the blame and the humiliation and, 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 the, and feeling hopeless and, and feeling undeserving. And I think that if we can change that framework, then people can start to really do the important work that has to be done in trying to contextualize the trauma, seeing it for what it is, and most of all, seeing that this is something that can be overcome. There is another side to traverse. It just looks all foggy from the perspective of having symptoms. And then maybe the fog can clear a little bit and you realize that there is a bridge to the other side of it and you can just walk across that bridge, maybe to a different place. I had an amazing relationship with my Nana, although it's kind of hard to remember bits and pieces of my childhood. Honestly, it's hard to remember most of it. I had an amazing relationship with my Nana. I thought of her as my best friend. She had a huge impact on me musically. I have always had a huge interest in the music industry. I started playing piano as soon as I could walk, thanks to her. Um, I started singing at a very young age, and that's where I found my passion. That's what made me truly happy. And, you know, I looked up to her in a way that I have never looked up to anyone else really in my life. I saw her as you know, as just someone I wanted to be when I got older. She was beautiful in every aspect, inside and out. And, you know, she just, she treated people in a way that I was like, felt very, it felt very good to be around her. And of course, I wanted to look like her. It was, it was very sad, very sad when she passed away for me. I felt like I lost my best friend. Yeah. She had an amazing impact on a lot of people, and I'm so glad you had that relationship with her. There's nothing comparable to the connection between a child and a parent. We feel the weight and the joy of responsibility from the moment we know we are carrying a life inside of us. They are part of us, and we are part of them. What that means, though, we are still uncovering. Think about the over 26 million of us who have taken DNA tests. 
we are beginning to access who we are in a completely new way, looking not just to our parents, but to our genealogy and family trees over multiple generations. How do these insights relate to -to day-to-day functioning or the way we connect with our children? Science and technology have made huge breakthroughs. Big business is piggybacking on those. However, in the trenches, so to speak, none of this has truly trickled down to tangibly helping our families. Because the real glue of a parent-child relationship is attachment. Next time. It is said that there are more connections in the brain than there are stars in the universe. As a psychiatrist who has worked in brain imaging, it is both awe-inspiring and daunting to think that a three-year-old child's brain will develop over 1,000 trillion connections, more than twice the number of connections in an adult brain. And that forming a secure attachment with your child is crucial during the same window of time. How does this happen? And what if the attachment is not secure? What is the dance that happens between parent and child to solidify these bonds? Next time on Mad Waters. <laughs>